The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 96 for the week of December 17th. Alex, we are just about there. We are just about there. And I think by there you mean our Christmas holiday? Our Christmas holiday. We at Colorado Equal Security are going to take a little bit of a break and, and not release a podcast through the end of the year so we can spend time with family and really not with you people. Yes, uh, we're tired of all of you. <laughs> Goodbye. So, so get out. Uh, we'll uh, see you next year. Well, I think we're really just tired of 2018. We're ready to move on to the next right. year. That's right. We are looking forward. Um, 2019 is, you know, it, it's going to be the best year yet. A banner year. Banner year. Banner year. We're ready for it. And so we're going to recharge our batteries and get ready. Well, sounds great. Um, before we do that, why don't we go ahead and just have this episode since we're already here. Oh, hey, <laughs> let's do that. Um, you know, and we do have some other announcements. Uh, we have a Slack channel. So if you like talking with uh, 700 of the greatest security professionals in the, the Colorado area, you should join that Slack channel and join the conversation. And one of the, the coolest things is, I don't, I don't know if you saw it yet, it, we have a new, a new person who joined us just yesterday oh. uh, who is the... Uh, the attorney general office's uh, attorney responsible for cybersecurity, Daniel. And I'm sorry, Daniel, I don't remember your last name off the top of my head, but he's joined the channel. So if you want to talk about cyber crimes or commit or confess to something, Slack is probably not the place to do it. Do we need to create a channel for that? (laughs) Confessions? Confessions. True confessions (laughs) channel on Slack. I like it. Um, We also have a mailing list. If you want to get the show notes delivered into your inbox every week, you can go out to colorado-security.com, sign up for that, and you'll start getting the the mail the show notes delivered to you each week. And we know you love listening, but the easiest way to do that is to subscribe so that this just shows up in your favorite podcast player. And then when you do that, it would be great if you rated us to show everyone how great a podcast this is. And if, if you do like us, we'd love it if you would uh, go out to our Patreon campaign, which is an opportunity for you to, to donate some money to support the show, help us pay for the uh, the hard costs of doing this. Um, we would love it if you would go out there and, and consider any level of donation at all. And a huge thanks to those who are already donating each month. We appreciate it. It keeps us going. And, and really, it's a big motivation factor for us. And if you're not up for giving us a financial contribution, which is perfectly fine, too, we'd appreciate you telling a friend, letting them know how great the podcast is and that they should listen, too. Awesome. Uh, we appreciate all those folks who help support us. Let's jump into the news. Uh, first, we have a list of the top Google searches for Colorado, and they are strange. They are a little strange. Um, I'm I'm actually a little shocked by this. So, uh, number one, I guess not a huge surprise. Number one was the World Cup. So, you know, World Cup is a big global event that happened this past summer. So I guess it's not horribly surprising that that would be up there as, at number one. Um, but number two is, uh, and I don't, I can't see the name right now, but I remember that it was a rapper who I have never heard of. His name is Mac Miller. Is this someone you know? Uh, I know the name, but I don't know that I'm a fan. Um, so number two, number three, and number five are all related to celebrities who died this year. Um, number three was Anthony Bourdain. Number five was uh, Kate Spade, who's a designer. Uh, do you remember what number four on the list was? Uh, number four was actually the uh, the sports one. So that was actually the Colorado Avalanche. You know, of all of the sports teams in Colorado to search for in Google, I, the Avalanche would not have been my choice. But I guess yeah. everybody already knows how to find the Broncos and the Rockies and the Nuggets. And maybe they just were a little bit yeah. lost about where to find the, the Avalanche. Well, I guess I will say I'm proud of you guys that none of your top five things were, were dirty. So congratulations to all of you out there for for doing fewer uh, dirty searches, or at least not doing all the same dirty searches, so it didn't That's make right. the list. That's right. Uh, next, we have an, uh, an article from Excel Energy. They pledged to be carbon-free by 2050. So, Rob, what does that mean? Uh, so I, I actually listened to a, a podcast this week where the president of the Colorado um, Excel company talked about this pledge and what that means it's really neat they're basically saying that they're going to make sure all of the energy that they produce by 2050 has a carbon zero impact on the organization on the environment so it's not necessarily that there's no um natural gas or coal that's a part of the mix at all but that it's offset by things like carbon uh, what's the word for it carbon uh return uh processes um they one of the my favorite things about hearing about this was that they actually went through what is the cost of each different type of 
energy that they produce at this point. So it, it costs about four cents per kilowatt hour for them to, to purchase um, uh, natural gas energy. It costs about 2.7 cents per kilowatt hour for them to do coal energy. But then they get into the renewable stuff. Uh, wind costs about one and a half cents. Um, that's for all of the new wind that they acquire at this point. Now, anything new that they get costs less, and the older stuff was actually up to about four cents per kilowatt hour. Um, solar costs them somewhere between two and a half and three cents per kilowatt hour to purchase. So, if you think th those are actually cheaper than we just mentioned for the non-renewable, she mentioned that there's a subsidy from the federal government that that brings those costs down. But even without the subsidy, it's really quite competitive with, with what they get for the non-renewable stuff. So she's, you know, she was expecting that, you know, over those next couple of decades, the technology is going to bring down the cost of solar and wind to, to make it. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to go with something else. That is pretty cool. Um, and I know Rob, you know, you and I are doing our part. We both have solar panels on our roof. So yeah, um, we're, we're already there. Yeah. Carbon neutral. Carbon neutral. I, I don't get nearly enough solar <laughs> to, to be there, but, but we'll do our best, right? Uh, next, there was a list put out by Built in Colorado of the 100 best places to work in Colorado. Um, and we do have, of those 106 of them, are security companies wow. here in town. Yeah. Um, number two on the list, CyberGRX, the third-party man risk management platform that's headquartered in downtown Denver. At number seven was WebRoot. Uh, number 10 is Carbon Black. Now, they are not a Colorado company, but they are they do have a large presence up in the Boulder area. Number 21 was CA, Computer Associates. I've, I have never heard anyone say they liked working for <laughs> CA, so it I, makes me really wonder about this list. Uh, number 38 is Logarithm, who is a, obviously the SIM company up in Boulder, and, and glad to see those guys made the list. And then number 52, but number one in our hearts ping identity and if you're interested in working for one of these companies ping identity has a couple of hey wait hold, hold, hold on that, that's not this section of the podcast <laughs> don't jump ahead next we have a, a few companies that are really growing their footprint here in the in the area uh, apple has announced that they're going to double the employee count that they have here in colorado uh, from what we could tell in the article there's somewhere between 100 and 250 employees here currently they expect to at least double that um, so that means we'll either, uh, I mean, we could go from 100 to 200 or we could go from 250 to 500. Yeah. I don't know. Good stuff. Uh, this is also on the heels of Apple announcing their uh, big, you know, it's not quite as big as Amazon, but they're sort of HQ. It's not really an HQ. Another big campus in Austin, uh, 5,000 workers down there, which Colorado did not bid to try and get because the jobs did not pay enough. So suck it, Austin, with your low paying yeah, jobs. Yeah, suck it. Um, the next is talking about uh, the big four and why they have big presence here in Denver. All four of those firms have increased their presence here over the last five years. Yeah. So uh, KPMG saw an 89% increase uh, between 2013 and 2017. EY, an 80% increase. Deloitte, a 57% increase. And PwC, a 49% increase. Um, you know, in the article... It's not surprising as Colorado grows and there are more companies and more people here, um, the need for the services that the big four provide um, grow. So they have yeah. more people. And finally, Zayo Group has chosen to uh, double the size of their Denver office. So they're actually moving into the old Chipotle office. We're glad that they left because we hate them. Uh, anyone who leaves Colorado, we, we hate Th them. That's right. You're, um, you're dead you're to dead me. To, you're dead to me now. And I'm a big Qdoba fan, apparently. Um the, so Zayo Group is moving into Ch Chipotle's old office, and they're going to have a, what, 60,000-square-foot office there that they'll be filling into. So that's awesome. Yeah, and um, it's interesting because they're, you know, previous weeks we talked about Zayo getting ready to, you know, potentially split into multiple companies. Um, so, you know, maybe they're also, you know, planning with different space for different companies. Who knows? Yeah, well, it, one other like, fact here, it does say that there's 400 people working in their current office which is 30,000 square feet. So, you know, I don't know if we can expect to move from 400 people to 800, but obviously there's some room for growth for, for that organization. For sure. Uh, next, WebRoot had a press release this week announcing the fact that they have reached ISO 27001 certification. Congrats to Gary Hayslip, the CISO there, and, and Tram, Mike Trammell, the uh, the deputy CISO, who we know. I'm sure a lot of good work went into getting that certification. Yeah, yeah. it's not an easy thing to do. 
Good for those guys. Uh, we have a blog post this week from Red Canary. Um, this is actually by their CISO talking about uh, evaluating endpoint products in a crowded, confusing market. So number one, totally agree with that that headline. It is a tough market now to, to dive into. Number two, they do a really good job, or, or Keith does a really good job of um, diving into exactly how do you analyze this market? Um, how do you kind of sort through what technologies work for you? Yeah, this it's a really good article. Uh, Keith lays out a, a nice framework to think about. Uh, different areas, questions you should ask. So if you are in the market for endpoint products, you should definitely take a look at this. I will say one thing that I wish they would do is I wish they would name names. Keith did not name names in the article. Uh, and I, I get it. They're, you know, they're a provider of services that work with a number of different solutions. Um, but if you're looking for, you know, this is the this is the product to pick. This this is not the article for you, right? You know, I'm I'm sure if you you know happen to run into Keith at the bar and you know bought him a drink, you know he might be able to give you a little bit of insight, but yeah. but not in the article. Uh, next, SendGrid had a uh, an article this week about their uh, f- their press release for their first inbox protection rate. So uh, this is a little bit different. You know, SendGrid is not technically a security company; they're an email service provider, um, but they're they're posting what their uh, the security of the emails that they deliver are, and they delivered ninety nine point nine seven legitimate emails across their outbound email flow. Now, so ninety nine point nine nine seven ninety nine point nine seven percent of their emails that they delivered were legitimate. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yes. Okay. And you may think, oh, okay, well, you know, what does that really mean? Um, on Black Friday, SendGrid processed two point eight billion emails and on cyber monday they also processed 2.9 billion emails so um even a small percentage um, of those emails being malicious going to people it could turn out to be a lot of emails yeah um so good on them for for really thinking about uh securing the emails that they send out not just passing along whatever comes through to them yeah Uh, it's awesome this is this is the first time i've seen them release this kind of a report and it's great that, you know, as a company that's that really doesn't sell their service based on security, that they're starting to think about security and, and be more, you know, speak in that language more. So that's great. Scott Gerlach is a CISO yeah. over there. We know him and appreciate the, Good job, the work Scott, they're doing. And all the, all the team over there. Uh, next, Coalfire has an article this week talking about the, the big Kubernetes vulnerability that came out. I think it was about a week and a half ago that that vulnerability came out. Yeah. Um, and it's actually become the more important over time. Initially it was a vulnerability that required authentication and now there's an unauthenticated version of the vulnerability. Basically it, it allows you to hop between containers, um, you know, with different, uh, with different, uh, security between the two. So really a, a challenge is something that needs to get fixed. Uh, coal fire kind of lays out the map for how do you, um, how do you address this? How do you look in your environment to see whether you're, you're vulnerable and what do you do if you are? Yeah, and it's uh, not just looking at, um, you know, the, it does look at it, but not just the part that, you know, upgrade. <laughs> you know, part of this was, it, you know, it started out with older versions of Kubernetes. Um, but, you know, thinking about how to look at the risk of um, different containers you have and other things like that. Uh, next, uh, Ping had a blog this week about how to be proactive about your API security. So, Rob, how do we be proactive about our, our API security? Yeah, I mean, the, the first question is, do you know what APIs you've got exposed? And, and as much right. as, you know, obviously this is, you know, the, critical controls list number one, know your inventory. Um, I think most companies, most security departments don't do a great job of understanding what their API infrastructure looks like. It's often something that's managed more by developers than by IT people, and maybe we don't have the same relationships there. Um, so number one is knowing what they are. And, and you know, there are tools out there, including something that Ping sells, that will do a scan and look for your APIs, find what that, that footprint looks like, and then uh, you have the ability to start looking at what normal behavior looks like. Your your firewall probably doesn't have a great signature to say what is normal behavior for your API look like. You need something that's more specific to APIs to help figure that out. I also think when you know people think of APIs and API security, they they think of the technical components, right? You know, I'm gonna make sure that it's you know authenticated and I'm encrypted and you know all that sort of stuff. A lot of this article talks about the actual governance process around it, the non-technical means, right? Asking questions, you know, do I need this API? Um, what should this API do? Who, you know, who should yeah. it talk to? Um, not necessarily, uh, you know, the technical means of uh, of securing them. Yeah, good stuff. Um, thanks, thanks to the uh, the Ping at Block author for that. Moving on, we have a, a the SC Awards. SC Magazine has done their their Trust Awards for the year, which really kind of go through different products, different companies, and talk about who's you know who's delivering good stuff. And, and a bunch of Colorado companies made the list this year. Yeah, uh, Webroot 
I think are these finalists or are these winners? These are finalists, these are finalists, finalists right? Yep. Um, Webroot was a finalist for best uh, SME security solution. Password Ping made the list for rookie security company of the year. Ping Identity for best identity management solution. Logarithm for the best SIM solution. ThreadX for best web app solution. And finally, WellTalk, which is uh, not a security vendor provider. They are an enterprise. Uh, they made the list for best security team. So that's Travis Shacks. Yeah, uh, awesome. He runs security over there. They made uh, they made a finalist for the work they do, internal security to WellTalk. Congrats, Travis, for being a finalist. That's awesome. I think it's in March, early March. We're going to find out the winners. So you know, hopefully we get a couple winners off this list. I too. think they usually do these at RSA, if I remember right. Oh, I bet it is, yeah. That they release yeah. The, the winners. That so. makes sense. Yeah. Okay, that, that would be early March, yeah. Uh, well, well, congrats to those, and let's go ahead and move on to the Slack message of the week. Uh, thanks to Andre Gato, who's been a loyal sponsor for us uh, over a year now, um, doing the doing these fun things. Um, whoever wins Slack message of the week gets to have something for free from the Colorado Equal Security Store. Yeah, and this week our uh, winner is Ben Ryder. Congratulations, Ben. Uh, ben posted an article on Friday about the Bitcoin ransom uh, bomb threats that had been going around. This was something that you know, basically struck um, not just the US, I mean, I think uh, the whole world. Um, the, a number of these were sent on Friday, um, in, including to uh, Columbine High School, mm-hmm. um, resulted in a, you know, a lockdown of a, a bunch of schools in Colorado, but it was, uh, I, I heard stories from all over the country, so. Yeah, and basically what the email said is, hey, we have a bomb in your building, there's someone there watching. If they start to see things get weird, he's going to set the bomb off. Yep. In order to stop this from happening, give us thirty thousand dollars in in Bitcoin um, sent to this address. Right. It's kind of a, a play on the sextortion schemes that were going around for quite a while previously. Uh, from from everything I've heard, there's been no payments on this. You know, you can you can monitor the wallets to see if anyone's paid. I, I was listening to uh, CyberWire today, and I think that they said there have been two dollars yeah. in Bitcoin that got yeah. sent to the addresses and, in there. And I, I, from that same thing, you know, the, it made a good point that you know, even if if you send a note like this to a school and say you have to do this by the end of today and you have to pay us thirty thousand dollars in Bitcoin, they probably can't. Like, right? There's they, they no can, way that that's going to happen. They might actually wholeheartedly want to give you thirty thousand dollars in Bitcoin, but have no idea how to do it, and they probably cannot. They can't eat thirty thousand dollars in one day. Yeah, the, the sad part though is for um, many of the places that received this, um, they have no choice except to follow their normal bomb threat protocol. Right. So even though you look at this and you're like, yeah, yeah, ninety nine percent sure this isn't fake, they're going to have to go through the motions yeah. of, of lock down the school, locking down, yeah. sweeping for uh, for explosives, all it's, that kind of it's stuff. Very so expensive. It's, it's very expensive. Um, so it's it, not a good thing. Yeah. Well, anyway, congrats to Ben Ryder for uh, for winning the award here, and, and we'll get you a note on how to how to collect your prize. Uh, so let's move over to events. Um, as we are getting to the the holiday break, you can imagine we are getting a little bit short on the events that we have coming up. So only a couple yeah. here. Uh, as a reminder, we do have an event calendar on the web on the website colorado-security.com. You'll see there's only a couple things left through December, but we we are pretty well populated going into January right now. So first on the list, on the 17th, SecureSet is doing their Denver War Games Capture the Flag. And on the 19th, the Denver City Sec meeting is having their last of the year. It's going to be at the Wincoop. Uh, they've just confirmed that location. So you can go join and, and drink a beer with some security folks before you take off on your holidays. Very nice. Moving over to jobs, we have a good sampling of jobs this week. At Ping Identity, we are hiring a GRC analyst. This will be someone to help support our our compliance with like SOC 2 and ISO, uh, our vendor risk management program, business continuity, um, those different kind of functions. We're looking for someone with, you know, really maybe more junior level, either right out of school or maybe a year or so of experience to help work with our more senior analysts doing that. And? Oh, we also have one other position at Ping that uh, we have a senior software engineer looking for someone who's got some in-depth Java development experience uh, helping build some of the most fun security identity products in the industry. Very nice. Next, uh, CoBank is looking for a security manager in the secure SDLC. So we talked about this last week, I believe. Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Um, and uh, Rob mentioned at the time that this probably reported to Stanton Meyer over there at CoBank. And we got some feedback from him that, that this is... Uh, a, an application security-ish focused. Yeah. Uh, Looking for someone who can help them not only do internal security SDLC, but also do assessments of SaaS products that they use, really you know, work as kind of the AppSec guru across the department. 
Good stuff. Uh, Spectrum is hiring a supervisor of network security operations. So it looks like probably if, if you want to be uh, heading a, a team in a SOC, there's an opportunity there at Spectrum. Nice. American Medical Response is looking for a cybersecurity architect. Great West, Great West Financial is hiring a senior security engineer. Uh, Direct Defense is looking for a senior security analyst. The U.S. Army is looking to hire a cyber network defender. Alex, what in the world? Yeah, and I put this one in here. I thought it was very interesting. Um, this is actually an enlisted position. So if you want to get this job, you're going to have to enlist into, into the Army. Um, but I thought, hey, you know, this might be interested, interesting for um, people that have kids um, or someone that is maybe just getting out of school. Yeah. Um, that look like there are a number of positions around this. I, and if you're interested in going into the Army and you're interested in cybersecurity, uh, it could be a good thing. So you have to be good at security and you have to be able to do push-ups. Yes. Both, or they'll get you there, maybe. I don't know. Uh, maybe. We'll see. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Uh, vale Resorts is hiring a network security engineer. Uh, Journey is looking for a senior security architect. Uh, I yeah. mean, you know. Uh, <laughs> we have a lot of puns here. We, yes. We're, <laughs> you know, it's it's more than a feeling. That yeah. I, I, you have to serve them faithfully to, to get this job. They will, they will welcome you with open arms. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, all right. Finally, uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, is hiring a security engineer here in Denver. So uh, if you want to be part of taking over all of the rest of the jobs, you can go over to Amazon before it's too late. You know, it's probably a good idea to get in there early. Um, that way, you know, you will not be voted off the earth. I don't, I don't yeah. know. It's, yeah. yeah, you're one of the, the Borg early rather than right, the exactly. late, right? Uh, I think that's it for the news this week. Uh, moving forward, we have a feature interview. Alex, you sat down with the president or CEO of Zvelo. Z yeah. Zvelo. Zvelo. Um, Jeff Finn. Yeah. And uh, in a high level, how'd that go? It was good. We had a great conversation. Um, many people probably do not know the name, but they are a web categorization company. So, you know, for doing web filtering, you have to have categories to, to do that filtering with. Um, that since they don't hire or uh, sell directly to consumers, you probably don't know the name, but it was an inter interesting conversation. Awesome. We're looking forward to hearing about that and looking forward to talking to you guys again in January. Thanks, Rob. All right. Happy holidays. Hello, this is Jeremy Cooper-Levitt, Managing Director of Assurance at Charles Schwab. This is Colorado Equals Security for Colorado Security Professionals by Colorado Security Professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. Uh, this is Alex Wood, and I am here with a special interview guest today, Jeff Finn, uh, CEO of Zavello. Uh, hopefully, I pronounced that right, Jeff. Yeah, Zavello. Yeah, Zavello. Yeah, yeah. All right, I I'll try and remember to okay. to do it better for the the rest of the interview. Um, thanks again, and, and appreciate you taking a little time today to, to talk with us. And thanks for your time as well. Yeah, um, I, I think as you know, you were saying earlier that you've listened to some of the episodes. Uh, we like to get into the the background of of you, and and not just uh, Zavello. So uh, I wonder if maybe we can start by you just giving a background uh, on yourself, um, how it is that you came to be CEO here and, and what your path has been. Sure, so I've uh, been at about 20 years. Uh, we, uh, prior to that, I've been in, in tech since during college. Uh, so worked for IBM for a short while, worked with a company called Applied Communications in Omaha for a short while. We did banking software, uh, did a number of startups uh, in the tech field. Um, one of which took me to London for a couple years, lived and worked over there um, with the Cable Wireless uh, subsidiary. Moved back here, helped take a company here in Denver Public, and then came over to, at the time it was called eSoft. We, we changed the name to Zavilo in 2010, okay. uh, but joined the company in, in uh, 20 years ago. Nice. And so uh, you guys are in, in the security space. Um, I sort of like to think of it um, around you know, like URL categorization and, and things like that. Had you always been in security or had you been in, in other areas of technology prior to, to coming here? Um, I'd been in other areas of technology prior to coming here. Um, we In sort of the late 90s, uh, at that point in time, we were building at, at eSoft, uh, at Zavilo, we were building an all-in-one security router. So that was really my first exposure to I'd call um, uh, pure security from a vendor standpoint. Yeah, and we were putting together um, a, a product that we'd sell into a small to medium-sized business that had firewall, IPS, IDS, antivirus, web filtering, spam filtering, a number of other functions, all into a single box. 
selling it to, uh, to through the channel. Uh, they would then take and sell that to, at small and medium businesses. And we made our money on the subscriptions to the, the services. So we actually um, had, had built up a, a pretty nice business, but that's a really cutthroat business. Yeah. Hi highly dependent on the channel. The channel's really tough. Um, and there were, there were a number of companies that were, had much better funding, much deeper pockets, you know, the Cisco's of the world and so forth. Right. Yeah, I remember some of those uh, Cisco multifunction devices that they had back exactly, in the day. Exactly, exactly. So there, there were um, a number of companies out there. And it was in about the 2005 time frame uh, where we started having some customers saying, look, we are running into some issues with your web filtering. They, they didn't realize we were basically licensing web filtering from companies at the time like Secure Computing, WebSense, and others, tucking under our covers and then uh, licensing that out, out to the marketplace. Uh, the, the problems that they were explaining to us that they were having, one was that there were more and more websites that were coming online that were uh, what today we'd call social media sites, blog sites, uh, where you had really diverse content across the website at the subdomain, at the page, at the full path level. Prior to that point in time, and really to a great extent, prior to today, virtually every other vendor in the web categorization business is categorizing content at the domain level. So Jeff.com might be categorized as sports, but right. you might have all these pages within Jeff.com that have all sorts of diverse content. Uh, we, it, when we started hearing about this, there were websites like MySpace.com and similar sites where somebody might have a particular page under myspace.com that might be talking about travel and within that same domain but on a different page or subdomain they might be talking might be posting pornography and companies were faced with the choice of either blocking the entire myspace.com right. because some of it contained porn or allowing everybody to access it within an organization, knowing that some people might find some of those corner areas of, of MySpace or whatever the website was that had pornography on it. So one of the first things that we were hearing was, can you solve the problem of trying to categorize content at the page level, deeper within, within websites? The second thing where we were uh, starting to hear, this is again in the 2005, 2006 timeframe, was people were starting to see more and more web-based malware attacks, um, early days of phishing attacks and things like that. Companies and vendors have become very proficient at blocking um, email protocol-based malware exploits um, through antivirus, through spam filtering and so forth. But at that point in time, really nobody was really focused on what was happening online uh, with websites. And again, those same very websites people wanted to have categorized at the page level were, were places where hackers were starting to put their exploits deep within those websites, then using social engineering to trick people into going to those um, particular pages where they were getting their, their payloads or where they were getting infected. Yep. So we, in, in the 2005 timeframe, uh, saw an opportunity to try and build a better mousetrap, which was trying to do page level content categorization and do malicious website detection. And we spent several years working on that um, took about three years to develop the technology. We released our first offering in 2008. Um, started seeing immediate demand in the marketplace for people interested in taking our technology, integrating into their web filtering and their parental controls and so forth. So much to the point that we ended up spinning off what had been our core product at that point in time, a little, this little UTM uh, box that we'd been selling. Um, so by 2010, we were at a point where we'd made a decision that we were going to focus 100% of our energies on, on categorizing the web, uh, which to us meant categorizing the content and doing malicious website detection. Uh, we changed the rebrand of the company as Zavilo at that point in time, and that's what we've been doing since then. So when, when you came over to eSoft originally, did you come in as CEO, or were you, did you come in as a different uh, position? No, I came in as CEO at that point in time. Yep. Um, and then... Uh, moving forward a little bit, you you know you did this spinoff of your your original sort of flagship project yep. uh, product. Yep. Well, where did that end up going? That was acquired by a firm out of Boulder, uh, who took that product line and ran with it for a couple couple years. Nice. Um, so then, 2010, you guys rebrand. Right. Um, where did the name come from? Good good question. <laughs> um, so coming up with a company name um, is a little bit like coming up with the name of a rock band. So you start right. eliminating all the, all, all the good names are already taken. Right. 
Uh, we look, look for open domain names. Look for open domains. What what ranks well? Uh, what has you know some sort of unique capabilities to it? We we couldn't find any acronyms that made sense. Right. Um, so we we started playing around with the concept of um, um, you know uh, Velo the bike you know the circular the feedback the constant movement um, because one of the things that that we were interested in uh, and felt we were doing unique in the marketplace was taking a very proactive approach to categorizing the web we weren't it wasn't static to us the the web was ever changing constantly evolving very dynamic so we wanted something that sort of reflected a very dynamic very proactive um, uh, name um, and to make it unique we threw a Z on the front <laughs> so it was as simple as that yeah. opposite of the uh, you know the plumbing and the, the towing people that you know throw three four five yeah, A's plumbing. Right. on the front right. of it um, right. you know you put the Z on it to get you yeah, guys exactly uh, the, the at the end of the alphabet and the the, the tongue recognition right uh, that's cool so uh, so it, it sounds like it, it's been a, a little bit of a, of a unique journey, and it, it, the the process has just sort of uh, to like sort of come to you guys, right? So it's, hey, we're doing something, and people are asking us for something slightly different. Um, you know, what are the, the the things that you guys feel like you've done? And I think you mentioned a couple of them that, that sort of make you unique because there's other people that do this similar things in this space too, right? Yeah, there, there's a, when we started, there were, I'll call it three 800-pound gorillas and then two or three companies that were sort of the next, next tier down as far as suppliers in the marketplace. Uh, during the time frame that we were actually building our product, 800-pound um, gorilla number one bought 800-pound gorilla number three. They merged those companies. 800-pound um, gorilla number two was acquired by uh, McAfee, who was then turned around and acquired by Intel. And so by the time we got around to actually launching our product, the, the market landscape had changed pretty dramatically. Uh, the couple of companies that we thought were gonna be our primary competitors ended up basically exiting the marketplace through being acquired and losing focus, uh, which allowed us to get a couple of anchor accounts very early on, which helped us to um, continue to reinvest in bringing on more engineers, um, getting the expertise we needed to really build this, this technology on. Um, when, when we made the decision in the 05-06 timeframe, this is what we want to do. We want to, we want to today the, the terminology is pivot the company. Well, we weren't smart enough to call it pivoting the company. We're, we're going to change what we're doing. Um, and we realized that we really didn't have the expertise we needed to be effective at categorizing the web or doing malicious website detection. So a lot of it was lessons we learned one at a time. And over the course of several years, we, we realized, okay, here's what works and what doesn't work for doing content categorization. Uh, we had to become proficient in things like uh, NLP. We had to uh, sort of go from a blue-collar AI machine learning approach to categorizing the web to more and more advanced, more sophisticated, it meant hiring different types of scientists, different types of, of, of uh, AI engineers, AI folks, um, and all that just took time to figure out what worked, what didn't work. Same thing on malicious website detection, figuring out what worked from doing static uh, analysis, behavioral analysis, um, what sandbox worked, which sandboxes didn't work, which did we have to build ourselves, what feeds we could use that, that we could trust, which feeds don't, you know, aren't trustworthy. Um, we're fortunate to work with a number of the leading antivirus vendors who incorporate our products. So we have sharing relationships for signatures and viruses and so forth. So all that helped contribute to us building, ex building a knowledge base on how to detect malicious sites. And over the last couple of years, that's really translated largely into how to detect phishing sites. Mm. Uh, and now we're distribution sites as opposed to strictly, you know, is a, is a site hosting a specific um, you know, exploit of some type. Yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned having to, to, to pivot the personnel based on the, the company pivot. Right. Um, what, is the, what is the size of the company today? And are, are most of the people here in Colorado? So we, we, uh, we're a private company. We've been private since 2002. Uh, we have the company split about half uh, in here in Colorado and half in the Philippines. So uh, what we do in the Philippines um, is we have our uh, web analysts uh, over there who create the training and the testing data sets, what we call the, 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 the corpora that we use for our AI engines. So AI 
and machine learning algorithms are very intensive on getting data to be used for training, what, what they're getting right, what they're getting wrong. And we've been in the Philippines now for over 10 years. We found it to be a very good place for finding folks that are excellent at um, doing the, the, the human tagging of content uh, that we use to train our, our AI systems and algorithms. Nice. Um, the, the whole thing to me seems like a, a really big problem though, or a, a big undertaking. I don't know if problem's not the right word. Um, you're essentially, you're categorizing the entire internet, right? I mean, that, Correct. that's yep. functionally what you're doing. I mean, how is it that you, you go about tackling such a large sort of problem? Well, we're, we're now, um, we just went live with our third generation of categorization systems earlier this year. So if you roll the clock back 10 years ago and we're thinking, okay, we want to categorize the web. What can there be? There can only be a billion or so pages. Um, so if we line up enough Filipinos, <laughs> we thought we might take a crack at it. Well, that ends up being um, something you obviously, I'm kind of joking, you can't right. scale this with humans. There aren't enough humans right. to categorize all the, all the websites that are you know, coming online every day, all the pages that are coming online. And the amount of data, the amount of content that is going live on the web every day uh, when you start looking at video and all the different social media pages and individual posts and blog posts and so forth or podcasts, whatever. Uh, it, there's no way you can scale this up using humans. Machines are good at doing certain things over and over, whether that machine is an AI, machine learning, whatever terminology people want to use for it. They're, they're good at doing certain things if you train them to do what, what you want them to do. Um, so what we've had to become um, good at, better at over the last decade, is how do we get humans involved in this, this circular, you know, circular loop, this feedback loop, where we can use AI engineers to build, build an algorithm. We use the, uh, the folks we have in the Philippines to basically tag data that we use for human supervised training of those algorithms. We process content, we look at the output, we randomly sample the output. We then use that, that sampled output and those verdicts that humans are looking at to further train our engines. So uh, to put it in perspective, um, we have right now about 90 uh, partners. We're strictly a 100% OEM company, so everything we do is through OEM partnerships. Uh, those OEM partners represent about 650 million end users who are, who are using our product for various forms of web filtering, parental controls, DNS filtering, reputation filtering, and so forth. So we are seeing queries from that um, active user base on a 24-hour-a-day basis. So we're seeing traffic coming in, what we have categorized, what we don't have categorized, that is the source of the traffic. So think of it as a very large crowdsourced uh, engine yeah. where we're getting all this data, all, this, all these URLs that need to be categorized. So any given day we are, we are processing you know, 5, 10, 20 million URLs on a, on a given day, uh, putting those back in our database, propagating those back out. And then as people go to new websites, new blog posts, new podcasts, new social media sites, whatever it might be, those are the source of the content we're categorizing tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, that is interesting, and I wouldn't have, you know, sort of to my naive mind, it's, you know, you have some um, giant, you know, farm of, of servers, whether that's cloud or whatever somewhere, that's just constantly going around and looking at everywhere on the, on the internet. Uh, but it sounds like you, you're, you have a different approach where it's, you know, the, the places where your software essentially is being used is, uh, is the place that also is doing the categorization. Is that... Correct. So, correct? yeah, absolutely. Good point. So, what we found early on was trying to um, crawl the web and guess what websites people are using mm -hmm. didn't prove to be very effective. It didn't give us very good coverage. So, what we ended up going to is what we call an active web approach, where we let our partners' users tell us what websites they're trying to get to. That also means we need to be not just very good in terms of accuracy and coverage, we need to be very, very fast in how, how soon we can, how quickly we can categorize a new website. So on, on any given day, we have these hundreds of millions of users. Their web surfing is what drives us to go categorize the URLs they're looking at. In 
pretty much real time. So we can categorize most websites in, in a matter of one, two, three, four, five seconds, put it back in our database. So all of our users, therefore, get the benefit of all the categorizations of all the traffic and all the surfing of, of our collective Borg, if yeah. you will, of all of our, uh, all of our uh, partners uh, and users. Yeah, so is that the approach that you've had all along? Because at some point, it's a, it's a chicken and the egg problem, right? So you, you don't have any users, but you need the users to be able to tell you where to look to categorize things. Did, did right. you start out with a different approach? Well, it is a, we, we did a little bit of crawling, taking things like the, you know, the most popular million sites, two million sites, getting those categorized, um, making sure we had coverage for those. But as I mentioned, we were, we were fortunate, um, uh, lucky, if you will, to be able to land a couple of large anchor accounts yeah. early on that were able to work with us and help nurture us and make sure we had sufficient coverage um, in, in the markets where they were active. Now, our initial plan was we want to be really good with, uh, call it 50 categories in our taxonomy, and we want to be good at English. And we thought, okay, that'll last for a while. Well, that lasted about two weeks, and our second <laughs> customer said, well, you know, we're active in Russia and Germany. Uh, and we need 100 categories. And our, our next customer said, well, we're in France and Japan. And so uh, within a year, it was clear we were going to have to find a way to support basically all the languages across, across the world. And we were going to have to develop a very, very granular taxonomy. So now we do support for over 200 languages, wow. and we have support for 500 categories. So within that 500 categories, you have a dozen or more malicious categories. You have about 30 suspicious, I'll call it gray category, anonymizers, tour sites, and so forth. And then you have um, uh, over 400 uh, topical categories, arts, alcohol, business chat, dating, all the way up to weapons and wiki at the end of the alphabet. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so say I'm using um, a product that, that licenses your categorization. Um, I go to a site that you guys haven't categorized yet. Right. Comes back to you, you guys go off and categorize it. Yep. How long does that take you guys? You know, you said you're fast. Yep. But how long does that take you from from when essentially you find out something new to when you have a, a verdict on what that category should yep. be? Good, good question. So with our um, prior generation product, it would take us anywhere from 30 to 40 seconds, maybe a minute or so, because we have to go through both the the content categorization, looking at the content. Mm -hmm. In parallel, we're running it through our malicious detection system to see, see is that is that particular page clean. Is it malicious? Is it compromised? Used for phishing? So that process in our prior generation systems would take, again, 30 seconds, 60 seconds. That wasn't fast enough. So we spent about three years developing a new technology we just brought online earlier this year. So those processes are now down into the second, sub-second, you know, a few seconds at most. Um, so people, in a lot of cases, can leave the connection, leave the session open while we're categorizing the content, and they can use it then to either block or allow access to whatever whatever requested URL that their, their user's trying to get to. And then do you guys have uh, infrastructure, I'll say sort of all over the place to, to handle, you know, sort of localization and, you know, you don't want to be, if you're trying to get something done in a second, you don't want to be reaching out from the U.S. to someplace in Sri Lanka to, to try and do the categorization. Right. So our partners, uh, we, we have a, a global load balance, fault tolerant, highly available network. Um, so if people are using our cloud services, they go to the nearest available cloud. Um, so the folks in Asia will go to China, Japan, and so forth. Folks in Europe will go to uh, the, the cloud locations close to them. Many of our partners, however, can't even afford the latency involved in a cloud lookup. Mm. So they will create and take data feeds and mirror our data locally in their data centers or at their end users' data centers, particularly when you get into um, high volume, um, massive query volume types of applications where people are doing billions or tens of billions of queries a day or they need right. millions of queries per second, they can't do cloud lookup. So we will, we've created a process where they can actually store, uh, mirror our data locally and then get data feeds to, to continuously update that local, uh, local data cache. So, so likely someone that is also maybe running a cloud service on their end, right? And they have a, a their own local sub cloud of your cloud, right? To to do that on their, exactly. on their premise, exactly. Yep, uh, that's pretty cool. Yep. Um, it, you know, one of the other things that struck me earlier is, you know, when you guys made your your pivot, you went from being a you know, sort of a consumer direct or you know business direct kind of company to a 
to a reseller, uh, just to other uh, other companies that are providing services. Um, how how was that transition, and and what kind of changes did you guys have to make? Uh, you know, obviously there's a technology piece for the, the product, right. but what sort of changes did you guys have to make going from you know, sort of a it seemed like a direct sales you know model in, in my mind, and um, to, to then being a, a you know a business to business. You know, service provider to, to other service providers. Yeah, no, another good question. So you're you're right on the technology side. Um, we we went through a series of uh, changes from we started with VMware platforms um, to sort of enhance VMware platforms. So most recently, we went to a SOA architecture platform. We run microservices, AI-based microservice on that. We've been fortunate in that a number of our engineers were able to make that transition and develop the skills over the last decade to, to help uh, with what we needed to do. We've complemented that by bringing in AI, data science, and so forth um, to help where needed. The biggest change for us was really on the sales and marketing. So when we were selling a hardware appliance, we were channel-based. So you'd go through the distributors, you'd go through resellers. Yep. Um, and that took a completely different type of organization, a channel sales organization that you know almost any company in that space is going to be familiar with, where you have folks calling on distributors, you're trying to work on the pull, you're trying to work on the push, demand creation, you know, have folks who are, who are doing the hand-holding with the resellers and so forth. That is a really expensive business model for companies to try and maintain. Um, in an OEM market like what we've been in now for the last decade, uh, it is all um, basically organic uh, demand that we're creating. Uh, we, we do virtually no sales and marketing, um, outbound sales and marketing. Yeah. Um, and fortunately, through word of mouth, we have a lot of our folks either find us by doing a simple Google search when they identify and say, we need a really highly accurate content categorization, web categorization, malicious detection. They're able to find us. Uh, or word of mouth, somebody leaves company A, they go to company B and say, hey, we used to work with Zavilo, loved them, fantastic responsiveness, great product, they do what they say they're gonna do, and that, that's the way we've grown our business. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing how, even, you know, even as a company that I, um, of your size now, that you, know, you, you can sort of survive without, without any sales and marketing. It, it's, um, it, it's I don't want to say it's funny. It's it's interesting, right? It's yeah. um, it's a great business model to be in, right? You, you don't have to worry about supporting that whole sales and marketing, you know, monster anymore. Yeah, it's different. I mean, there there's um, you know, in, in this case, um, in the product we sell, the markets we serve, the partners we work with, they really we're, we're selling to a highly technical, very sophisticated buyer. Um, they're not going to believe anything they read on our website or what a sales rep tells them. They're right. like, okay, when do you want to talk to you? Just let us get our hands on the product. Let us evaluate it. They'll go through the evaluation to determine, okay, what's the accuracy? What's the coverage? How fast you guys categorize? Yep. Um, what's the speed of lookups? What's your language support? They'll make all the determinations on their own. And so our product absolutely has to stand up. And so right now there's there's really only two or three companies in the market doing what we're doing. And fortunately, we're at a point where we believe in both anecdotally in the, in the testing that we do, that we are superior on basically all the evaluation criteria that, that people are looking at these days. So if, if you're not, you never hear back from them. You know, they'll, right. they'll do the evaluation and, and quite frankly, they, don't, they won't call you back. You know, won't even return a phone call if, if, um, if the product doesn't pass muster. Well, you know, that's technical people for you, right? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You said that you did, you did this, you don't do this. Okay, I'm not exactly, even talking to you anymore. Exactly. See yeah, you later. Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we, you know, we, we go to great lengths, and uh, this is all we do. This is 100% of our focus. Uh, so you said earlier this year you released this new platform. Yep. You've got your detection times way down. Uh, what, what does the future look like for you guys? What Now that you've got this, this new platform, are you, you know, going to... You know, platform X plus one. Are you are you looking at new areas? What what's the the future look like for Zavilo? So we we've um, what we believe we built this really great categorization and detection engine, highly scalable, able to process massive amounts of data, deliver massive amounts of data. Um, so within our what we call our core business, the the categorizing the web business, uh, we're we're definitely seeing. Um, very strong demand for continuing to improve and enhance phishing detection. 
So that is across the board with virtually everybody we're talking to wants better fishing. Um, we've seen, I'll, I'll call them sort of more niche kind of requirements. Um, for example, earlier this year, we started seeing an increase in uh, crypto cryptocurrency mining exploits. So people wanted the ability to say, okay, can you help us detect whether or not our right. site's been infected? You know, our, our, uh, you know we're, we're being uh, used you know, for people, uh, Bitcoin mining in the background or something. So we'll, we'll continue to, to, to spend time improving the products we have on around the web categorization. But since many of our customers are in network security, where they're putting routers, uh, UTMs, firewalls, gateways into um, enterprises, small business, consumers, residential, and so forth, one of the increasing things that, that uh, people are starting to pay attention to is around IoT and connected device security. And so starting about two years ago, we began working on how to do, use our detection capabilities and our categorization capabilities and say, hey, look, rather than categorizing a website, can we categorize a device? Can we then look at that device and tell you whether or not it's acting normally or abnormally? So we introduced a, an IoT security product offering last year uh, that provides the ability to do device profiling uh, device detection, device profiling, and then anomaly detection. And we can tell you whether or not the Nest thermostat is operating within the expected range of behaviors or whether or not it's now operating abnormally or it's been hacked, compromised, and potentially being used for DDoS attacks or whatever it might be. That is that is really interesting. Um, I want to dig into that a little bit. So sure. how, how exactly does that work then? So theoretically, my, my Nest thermometer is not going to be available and accessible on the internet. Right. Um, yeah. Not to say that that's 100% true for all Nest thermometers. Yeah. Uh, so, so how is it that you get uh, get access to, to look at those devices and do the, the proper polling and testing and whatever right. you might need to do on, on a device like right. that? So um, the, the approach we took is to deploy uh, a piece of code onto the local router. So it can run on uh, any type of, of uh, generally available router. Uh, it can run on a gateway. Uh, we can even build it on a, on a Raspberry Pi for the folks who are interested. Um, the device is then installed in a place in the network, obviously, where it's seeing all the network traffic to and from the internet. Okay. So as it gets, as that router running our code gets installed in a network, it starts looking at and detecting all the different traffic coming from devices in that local network. And it can say, okay, here's device one, two, three, four, five, and it starts cataloging those devices sends the data up to our cloud where we can look at it and say, okay, here's the MAC address, here's the IP, here's the other information. And we can say, that looks like a Nest thermostat. Oh, it looks like a Nest thermostat model 10. Oh, it looks like a Nest thermostat model 10 with this version of whatever else. And so we, we found that we can be very accurate at detecting all these devices on the network. Surprisingly, to me anyway, what we found is many of our partners are saying they're sysadmins, that to them is a big win, just being able to identify what devices are on the network. So knowing they can narrow it down from just iPhones to Jeff's iPhone or Jeff's Mac is a very important thing for them to have. So that to me was sort of a given with our offering, but that turns out to be something that is of interest to people. What we do though is once we're on, on that network, we're monitoring the traffic and some devices are more verbose than others. A Nest thermostat, for example, isn't gonna have a lot of connections, communications out to the internet. Um, a streaming video uh, camera is gonna have a tremendous amount of data that is sending back and forth the internet. So we can, in some cases, very quickly, within a matter of minutes, other cases might take a few days, develop a profile and say that device is doing what it should be doing, it's going to the right kind of websites, since our core business is telling you whether a website is a Nest thermostat associated website, it's a compromised website, it's a malware distribution website, it's a phishing website, whatever it might be, a, a C2 website. So we were able to use that data and leverage it to say that Nest thermostat is compromised or suspicious, this video camera is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And we provide trust scores and we provide that to our partner and then can say, look, we're not setting the policies or implementing the policies, we'll let our partner do that within their application layer uh, and, and give the sysadmin the tools as far as where they want to set blocking, filtering, segment, yeah. or segregate that device from the network. Is this, uh, obviously it's through the partners, but is this 
Is this a service that you see them offering to businesses or to consumers? The, um, and if, you know, if both, what sort of um, you know split? If you if you know that. Yeah. So um, so right now, I think the biggest challenge with IoT security is just general market awareness or concern. So it's not unlike where I think the market was at in the late 90s as it related to just viruses in general. Right. It took a couple of, a series of headline grabbing incidents where people realized, oh man, maybe I better get some endpoint and perimeter security and do something about these viruses. Right now, most of the devices, many of the devices are being installed into homes. It, it, it surprises us, it surprises you know, the, the, the people who are installing these devices in the homes how many web-connected devices in their homes when they start adding up light bulbs, thermostats, laptops, Fitbits, wearables, you name it. And we're seeing 30, 40, 50, 60 devices in just an average little household that are connected to the web. One of the challenges though is people say, well, how can this cute, cuddly little device right. that I just plugged in and I'm not, I didn't have to do anything to it and just started working for me, that can't be a threat. And we're like, well, it may not be a threat to you, but it might be being used as a threat against some other company over here on a, on a DDoS attack or something. It, it, it's almost like a victimless crime where the people who own the product aren't aware that it even has the potential for doing sort of mischief. Even if they're aware, they don't know what to do about it. Even if they knew what to do with, about it, most of the IoT devices are designed in a way that they can't run an endpoint security client. Yep. So they're like, well, you want me to take this, throw these devices away, go to Home Depot and go install some more light bulbs that are going to get immediately infected two minutes later. So the consumer market, I think people are trying, struggling with how to monetize IoT security at this point in time. Uh, the, the, the people that are probably closest to it are the cable companies, some of the telcos, broadband providers, ISPs, who are probably going to sell it as like a managed service. Say, hey, for an extra 10 bucks a month, we will manage and alert you to any sort of IoT or any web-connected threats that are in your home. Um, industrial is a little bit different story. There's awareness there. Um, they're spending a lot of money on these, these connected devices. And they, you know, unlike a thermostat, which is sort of a throwaway if it breaks or isn't working, right. you can't very well throw away a heart monitor, a dialysis machine, or, you know, some of the industrial controls that are being put into factories and so forth. So that's where we're seeing probably an earlier market adoption of, of profiling and security around those types of devices. Um, it, it occurred to me as you were saying that, um, you know, most likely the, you know, even if someone who is listening to this, the podcast um, thinks, wow, it sounds like uh, Zavello is doing uh, really, really cool stuff. They're one, not going to know if any of the products that they use actually uh, use your technology, and they may not even know how to figure out if they do. Is is there a way that that someone could figure out if, you know, I use um, you know X Y Z, you know, device at my office or at my home or whatever is using your technology in the back end? You know, you guys have a, a partner list or a, you know something like that that people can can look at. Yeah, you know, and another. Or do you do you even care? You know, yeah, <laughs> we we care. So this is you know it, it's actually a very um, very insightful question comment. We talked before about one of the benefits of our sales and marketing model in that you don't really need a big sales channel to do what we're doing. Right. One of the downsides is, in many cases, we're the secret sauce that gets tucked inside our partner's products. Yep. And it's sort of under penalty of death will you disclose that we are using Zavilo. So we, um, in, in many cases, we can't disclose who's using us. Um, we, we certainly work with our partners to create content, whether it's blogs, white papers, help them with videos and so forth to help promote the concepts and, and capabilities that, that we offer. Um, but unfortunately, it's, it's, that's one part of the puzzle we haven't cracked yet. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I guess people will have to, to do some digging on their own and, yeah. and then see if they can figure it out. Yeah. Um, well, we're getting close to time here. Um, this has been a great interview. Was there anything that you wanted to, to talk about that we haven't hit yet? No, I think I think this is great. I, I appreciate uh, what you guys are doing with your podcast. Um, we were talking offline before before we started here. Uh, I think what you guys have done is great. There's really uh, I haven't found any other place that sort of is an aggregator of all the news commentary on on the local cybersecurity scene in the in the Metro Denver area. So it, it, you know, great job for you guys putting this together. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff. Yeah.
appreciate the compliment. Um, we'll, we'll try and keep it up. Yeah. Um, and we appreciate your time too. This has been great. I, I've learned a lot about uh, you and what you guys do. So uh, thank you for your time. Uh, and this has been Colorado Equal Security. We will talk to you next time. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.